WATD presents Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi. If it's Monday night, it's got to be Monday Night Talk with Kevin Tachi. So thanks for having me on. Kevin, good for you to hold back and let him tell his story. Putting the South Shore spin on politics, current events, and pop culture. You guys are the center of the universe today. At least the political universe. I believe both of you are, are from the area. Marshfield guys, yes, no? Correct, yeah. That's right. There's only one person not from Marshfield in this room right now. And it's you. It's me. I'm the outcast. Well, you've always been generous with the time. I appreciate it very much. Oh, I'm honored to be on your show tonight, Kevin, with that impressive lineup you have. I believe our guest that we've been waiting for, Congressman Stephen Lynch. Kevin, good to join you. The governor of the Commonwealth. Very Charlie good. Thank you. You ready? I got to tell you that uh, it was really nice to hear Aerosmith on the intro there. You're going to be the rock and roll governor? I don't know about that, but... We have Mayor Joe Sullivan joining us, sir. How are you? Well, Kevin, very good to be with you again. Dr. Drew Pinsky. Dr. Drew, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Mr. Ming Tsai, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Massachusetts State Auditor Suzanne Bump. Hello, Auditor. How are you? I am fine, and I'm delighted to be with you this evening. And now, your host, Kevin Tachi. Welcome and good evening. You are tuned in to Monday Night Talk here on 95.9 WATD. Also on 1460 AM WBMS. Of course, uh, BMS stands for Brockton Metro South. My name is Kevin Tachi. I will be your guide until 8 p.m. this evening. So we have uh, the usual list of folks who will join us for good conversation. Uh, we'll start with second hour. Second hour, we get, it's almost like an author's hour. Uh, we have a David Daniel. He is the author of Beach Town Stories. This is a collection of small stories, short stories, I should say. Uh, something that uh, that some of the the travel that uh, the David did, uh, part of the books, the, the book that he has uh, written. Uh, originally, a guy from Weymouth. We look forward to talking to him. Also, Maureen Boyle. Maureen Boyle. Uh, this is a. Her second book that we are going to be chatting with her, the name of the book is called The Ghost, The Murderer of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer. Again, this is uh, available now uh, if you shop at the Barnes & Noble uh, and uh, Amazon. You'll be able to grab this book. Same with the David Daniel. Uh, hour number one. Uh, we'll be joining us right now. Uh, State House re- Report with... State Representative Allison Sullivan Almeida. She'll join us in just a second. And then uh, to close out the hour, Mary Waldron, Executive Director of the Old Colony Planning Council. So we'll chat with Mary about uh, the upcoming uh, finance audit that they have, economic development, and of course, transportation. But right now, we welcome on the phone lines, we have uh, Representative Allison Sullivan Almeida. Representative, welcome back to Monday Night Talk. Hey, Kevin, how are you? It's great to be here. How are you? I'm doing great, actually, yeah. Well, we should probably start off with a little introduction to Alina Teresa Almeida, uh, yeah. born August 4th, 2023, 8 pounds, 12 ounces. Wow, you got it right. Look at you. <laughs> I did a little research. <laughs> yeah. So, so talk to us about your little girl. Uh, she's amazing. You know, she's She's growing so fast. I know every parent that's probably listening will tell you mm. um, how quickly they grow, right? To enjoy every second because every second's different. 
And I'm definitely experiencing that, you know, and obviously I've experienced it with my nieces and nephews, but it's a lot different when you're a mom and not auntie. And it's, um, it's, it's been a joy. I, I'm over the moon. I tell people, I feel like this is what, you know, was in my cards and always meant to be. Yeah, you're already you're already getting her involved with uh, with, with um, what's happening <laughs> in the communities. I, I know she's been uh, up at the state house with you. She's had to endure some hearings, and uh, yep. and uh, a week ago Saturday she was at her very first town meeting. Yep, she was at a town meeting doing her civic duty there. Um, she was also at her first committee hearing, which was um, interesting on trying to do with a newborn. Um, and she was also on the House floor debating um, issues that face our Commonwealth. Um, but she's also had some fun stuff to do, too. She's been in Abington for Abington's Oktoberfest. Abington celebrates Oktoberfest Month, so you're not so scary woods. I think she might have slept through the whole entire thing, but that's okay. <laughs> did you uh, did you dress her up, or did you, did you take any Halloween pictures yet? No, not yet. I have a, my mother got her this little unicorn uh, onesie thing that we're going to put on her. So um, we'll have some pictures posted on that. So, so what's it like to be a an active legislator with with child? Oh boy, that's a loaded question, Kevin. That's yeah, yeah. definitely a loaded question. Um, you know, it's definitely it's just like you know anything else in my life it's, it's balancing and finding time for for the important things that come with family but also making sure that i'm accessible and reliable to the community that i serve i mean i took an oath and i and i ran on it that i would be available and it includes even being on quote-unquote maternity leave you know people ask me all the time you know oh, are you enjoying maternity leave and i said of course i'm enjoying it but at the same token i'm also actively working um i think the only time that the work in the sense of what I was doing stopped was probably the the week I had her um, preparing for the birth as well as you know the post birth but um, I think it was about a week later I was at an event in Abington uh, for Yasmin's uh, opening of her cafe so it's important to to continue doing the work that I do and helping people um, but it's also important for me to be a mom and be present in her life. I think it's worth noting that besides besides Alina being one of your first loves, along with your husband George, uh, noticed noting that October is uh, is a, is a dual awareness month for you, uh, whether it's yes. for domestic violence or breast cancer awareness. Do you want to talk to the, talk to that for a moment? Yeah, you know I have family that have battled and um, are now in remission when it comes to breast cancer. I've had family friends that have lost their battle with breast cancer so that's near and dear to our heart um but then obviously as everyone knows or most people know i'm a survivor of domestic violence so this bringing attention to such a horrible thing throughout our commonwealth i mean we're seeing so many especially post-covid is these murder suicides that um entailed some form of domestic violence or um um uh, intimate partner relationship violence. So it's it's bringing awareness and giving resources to those that may need it. You know, it's worth noting, and I don't know if it's something that we want to dovetail into, but, you know, uh, you from your first time standing on the floor uh, as a newly elected uh, state representative and talking about mm -hmm. domestic violence to uh, speaking up and talking about the, the modernizing firearms laws. Um, mm. you, 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 you've never, uh, you've You've never been a shrinking violent when it comes to uh, speaking your mind. And uh, recently, during the uh, the hearing for uh, House Bill forty one thirty five, you you were vo you were vocal. 
Yeah, you know, I, I spoke out against the overall bill. I also filed an amendment that I thought would make this bill, you know, what I think is a not-so-great bill a little bit better when it comes to actually addressing some of the issues that are hitting our Commonwealth. You know, we heard testimony both in the hearing in front of uh, Judiciary and House Ways and Means, but also on the House floor regarding illegal use of firearms and the violence that has taken place in these inner cities. And what we're seeing is almost this catch-and-release mechanism when it comes to the court system and the criminal justice system, and no fault to anybody's but the fact that the law isn't on our side, right? So under a 58A hearing, which is what we call a dangerousness hearing, a judge would be able to order um, someone being held under that dangerousness, whether it be uh, 90 days or 120 days, depending on what the charge is, if they were in possession of a firearm, an illegal firearm, or certain gun crimes. Um, I thought that was a no-brainer, but unfortunately, um, the majority of the House voted that down. They cited to the fact that there were bills in front of judiciary um, and that they're going to take into consideration those bills. Unfortunately, our communities need action now. Um, you're seeing uh, daily, almost, um, instances that have taken place in our Commonwealth in the use of an illegal firearm. And the authors and, and supporters of this bill will have you believing that it addresses those issues. However, it doesn't. Um, and so that was a big, important issue that I spoke on, and I spoke on the overall bill to, to clarify. In fact, it doesn't address the illegal gun use uh, when it comes to the uh, inner city violences that are happening. And again, and it's worth noting again, your husband, somebody who works in law enforcement, you have family members who are in law enforcement, and knowing that many of the the Commonwealth's police chiefs were were against this, so why would this be something that would be able to move to the house? Well, that's it. You say some of the police chiefs. I believe it was a unanimous uh, vote on the Mass Police Chiefs um, Union, and I don't know about you, but I don't see any chiefs. Um, unanimously agreeing on anything. Right. Um, so that was shocking to hear that they all came together and said, no, this bill doesn't address the issues that are facing our, our communities, and we need to do better. Don't don't put this guise over people's you know perception of what this bill actually does. I mean, I specifically said it's simply a, a Trojan horse, a bait and switch when it comes to what this legislation will actually do. Um, and, you know, speaking with lawful, law-abiding responsible gun owners, they're really concerned with this. What is this going to do to them in the future? And I know they put in a grandfather clause that allows them to keep those multi-list of, I think it was over five, five maybe six pages of um, banned guns. Um, you know, th there's a concern there. You know, it, it's not it's not the, the law-abiding, lawful gun owners that are running the streets and, and shooting at, you know, people, houses, and vehicles. It's, it's people that are criminals it's dangerous individuals it's it's unlawful carrying in possession of a firearm uh, and that's what we need to address it and unfortunately we're not doing that we should be we should be going in on the judges to make sure that they're enforcing the, the laws that are already on the books the mandatory minimums i mean you don't see that anymore and it's frustrating do you you know have you had a chance to speak with any of your colleagues in the in the senate I mean, we know that that's where it's going to move to next for conversation. Any thoughts that there may, maybe there might be more conversation and it may, it may stall up? Because I'm sure that if they're going to put something together, it always happens that the Senate bill is going to be vastly different and somehow 
it may go to committee to see if they can iron out the differences. Yeah, I mean, it's no secret. I mean, I think it was public knowledge when it came to the original bill that came down the pipeline before um, our August break, which was the concern that it was going to actually get to the floor before the end of July. Luckily, that bill, um, which was even worse than the bill that we've seen um, this past week, it, it just fizzled out, right? But you saw that infighting when it came to this House and the Senate leadership. Um, they wanted it in one committee. The House wanted another committee. They were, I mean, they fought tooth and nail and that's why you saw the way that the the leadership brought this bill to the floor i mean it's it's absurd and the public should be outraged on the fact that you know they had less than you know a weekend to prepare for a committee hearing when it came to the release of the bill the language and then a set date for a committee hearing and everyone knew when that committee hearing was scheduled that it was a matter of moments that it was going to be scheduled for the house floor i mean it's Talk about lack of transparency and a lack of public interest when it comes to being able to testify either either in support or, or in um, opposition to legislation. I mean, it, it, that's not what we should be doing, and that's not the way the House should be conducting its business. So while you have uh, many of the folks around the South Shore tuned into uh, this conversation, if there's anything that you could implore them to do in regards to this legislation as it moves to the Senate, what would you say to them? I mean, I'd encourage them to reach out to their senators, their state senators, asking them to oppose the legislation. I mean, especially the fact that very limited um, hearing time to, to hear from constituents. I mean, most most people work during the day, and, and to have that short period of time to be able to come forward and, and voice your opposition, I think you need to get your voice heard. And the only way to do so now is at this point is to, to write your state senators and ask them to, to shoot this bill down and, and to really, no pun intended, but, you know, um, to really kill this bill. You know, it's, it's absurd. If you are just tuning in, uh, we're speaking with the state representative, Allison Sullivan Almeida, representing the 7th Plymouth District, East Bridgewater. Abington and Whitman. Uh, take a quick look in your district. Some uh, over the over the weekend a vote. It looks as though there's going to be a new fire station DPW uh, coming to uh, your community as they voted uh, not only in town meeting a week prior but at the ballot uh, box uh, this past weekend. Give uh, give me your thoughts. Yeah, you know I know Derek did some great work at uh, preparing for. Um, the presentation to the town um, and he really put his blood sweat and tears into this and and you know seeing and touring both facilities here in Abington I mean they were in desperate need of a new fire station you look at our surrounding communities and what they're um, able to receive and, and where they're able to lay their heads at night when when they're on shift or um, you know, different things like that. Their families can come visit them. The stations that they have now, you don't want anyone to come visit, even though they love getting visitors, just because it's not in the condition that you'd want to have uh, the public in. So I'm happy that uh, Abington came out in support of it. I understand, you know, there's there's definitely going to be a tax increase, and that's definitely a concern. But hopefully, you know, with speaking with the the town and putting things to town meeting, um, maybe there'd be ways in the future to offset this cost, but it's something that is needed, not something that's wanted. So that I'm happy for the firefighters um, and congratulations to Derek and his hard work at at bringing this forward. 
And again, the Derek she's speaking of, Derek Hamadi, uh, who was yes, chair. Yeah, Derek Hamadi. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all right. Uh, the uh, the fire station building committee and was uh, leading the charge along with the uh, uh, the board of selectmen, uh, Kevin Donovan, um, uh, Alex Haggerty, um, even uh, even past uh, uh, elected officials, and of course Scott Lambiasi, who also worked on it, and John Stone who is the uh, DPW director, all doing work to try to get the word out there. Interesting enough that, that this was a project that was uh, initially touted to be, what, 50, a bit more than 53, 54 million dollars, and they actually were able to cull it down to something that was a little bit more affordable. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely able to, to I mean, it's, it's a beautiful facility that they're projected to be able to build, um, so I'm excited for them. You know, and like you said, all those other people that uh, were big parts of it. I keep saying Derek because Derek, I think, called me once a week at some point uh, to find out if there's any state funding, if there's any bond bills that were, might be coming out, if I knew of any federal funding. I, I mean, the amount of calls I put into Congressman Lynch's office trying to get him down to view the um, to view their, their stations as well to see if there's any federal funding that we can get to offset that cost because, like I keep saying, it's not a want, it's a need at this point for these firefighters, um, these amazing men and women in our community. Now, you, you look uh, in another one of your communities, and that's the town of Whitman. They, uh, a week from today, will be going to town meeting. There's, a, a, I guess they're going to look to ask the community for money to hopefully build a new middle school. Now, I don't know if also hmm. part of that is needing additional additional funds for a project they approved earlier this year, and that was finally to build a new DPW building. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I know that uh, Whitman's DPW building has been in disarray for a while, so I think that is definitely, um, you know, those men and women are the ones that are out uh, making sure the streets are saved, whether it be during a, a hurricane, a, a really bad thunderstorm, or a snowstorm, uh, or a blizzard. They're the ones that come out when you complain about a pothole around the corner, so... Um, having a facility that they can really um, utilize is important. So I'm happy that um, you know this is this is on the agenda as well as the middle school. I mean, I heard and I've toured the middle school um, at times, and the the issues around it, it's just it's falling apart. So um, I think that's important as well, especially for the safety of our, our teachers, our staff, and our students. Yeah, I believe that uh, it's a uh, hundred thirty, hundred thirty-five million dollars. I believe the state will will kick in some money through the uh, the Mass School Building Authority, but I think the yep. town they may be asking the town for uh, a decent chunk of money. I don't know if it's going to be between um, eighty and ninety million dollars uh, to foot uh, to, to to bond this project. Yeah, I mean it's definitely a big bill, uh, but long term, I think it you know, will be beneficial for the community itself. I mean, the, the, the building itself is falling apart. I know that I've heard from um, several either school officials and or the administration talking about um, the leaks, the, the mold, the, all the issues that are going on in the school. So, unfortunately, um, you know, with the times, things become more pricier. But I, I think it's important that the community gets out and voices their opinion, you know, whether it be that, it gets to a ballot and they're able to vote on a ballot box that you know that'll be up to the community right and then uh, speaking of the ballot box as uh, the representative uh, mentioned so town meeting is uh, a week from this monday and then the vote will be that following saturday it'd be i believe it's good november 4th that uh, mm -hmm. it'll be voting will be at the uh, town hall in uh, downtown whitman we haven't uh, i don't know as far as what's going on in east bridgewater if there's anything you want to 
touch upon in your district, especially that part? Yeah, you know, they're having the bicentennial um, events going on all year long. And and this year, they're actually hosting the Veterans Day. They switched, I believe, with um, Bridgewater, I want to say, or West Bridgewater, one of the uh, tri-towns. They switched to host Veterans Day Parade this year. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, And they're going to be dedicating uh, one of the gazebos in the town hall um, to a constituent. So that'll be, um, I think, a a good thing to, to participate in. So if... You're not going over to Rockland. If you want to go to East Bridgewater, there's always um, that. Go out and celebrate our, and uh, recognize our veterans in our community. Now, have you had a chance to get back to holding regular office hours? Or is that something that, that's in the works as you, you get acclimated with the newborn? Yeah, so we, uh, we've always held office hours. It was just uh, Catherine kind of took over for a little bit. Um, in those office hours, it's always been Catherine um, would steadily be there if there was ever a conflict with my schedule and needing to be up at the state house. But we've continuously held office hours. I think the only month we took off was um, the month of July um, this year. So we have them every every beginning of the month. You can check your COAs for the listings. Uh, you know, we do it Tuesday, the first Tuesday and the first Wednesday of every month. So. Um, and then obviously, if needed, um, we're available to meet. If those dates don't work, I know that they're not always the best dates for people. So um, you can always reach out to our office if you needed to set up a meeting. Uh, we'd be more than happy to do so. But Abington's and East Bridgewater. Um, East Bridgewater's um, office hours are every Wednesday, the first Wednesday. So the first one would be November 1st, I believe, is the first Wednesday of this month or coming up. Um, and that's usually we hold them at 1130 uh, for an hour if needed, but we can stay longer. Um, and then Abington's uh, office hours are on Tuesdays, the first Tuesday. So I believe that would be the seventh of this month. Um, and that's at 1130 and Whitman's is at um, 10 o'clock. So and those are all held at the COAs. And let's let's uh, t- tip of the cap to, to Catherine. Uh, how valuable is it? Uh, you know, you've had some great aides uh, who have assisted you during your time in office, uh, and it seems as though Catherine's following right in line. Oh yeah, Catherine. I mean, she's she's definitely a lifeline, especially with being a new mom and and you know going in for labor twenty days earlier than expected and and kind of having softball thrown at us left and right. And she really just jumps into the role, you know, where she knows how important it is to service our community. And she has, you know, gone above and beyond for the constituents, not just in Abington, Whitman, East Bridgewater, but throughout the Commonwealth, you know, um, whenever someone reaches out, we don't turn anyone away, no matter where they live, um, because it's important that we get services to um, residents so I, I big shout out to Catherine. I think she's listening right now. If not, you know, uh, she'll hear about it later on. But she's great. And most of the community, I think, knows her. And if you don't, you'll hear her laugh from a mile away. And it's a very, um, you know, <laughs> you, you just can't help but laugh when you hear it. And she's a, a, a light in our, in our office. And I'm so happy that I have her. And, and she's a resident. Anything we haven't touched upon, but you want to make sure you uh, you mention before uh, we uh, uh, say goodbye until our next segment? No, I feel like it's been forever, so I don't really know what else we haven't touched on. But, you know, um, 
I'm excited to, to be out in the community over the next couple of months with the different events going on for either Veterans Day or Christmas. I know East Bridgewater this Christmas on the Common, and that'll be exciting and all the fun things that are going on. Abington celebrates host Christmas as well, festivities in the, in the Grove. So I'm looking forward to all that, especially now being a mom and being able to have a baby to enjoy it with. And my husband and I, George, we're, we're looking forward to that. So um, if you know, I'm hoping we'll be on before the end of the year. But if not, I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season as we go into November. It's crazy that we're already into November. Mm-hmm. So probably the last question I didn't ask you is how is uh, Aria uh, taking to the new uh, the the new baby? Yeah, my little fur legged uh, baby over there, four four legged fur baby. Um, she is doing amazing. She actually, um, whenever when I was pregnant, she'd lay her head right on my belly, almost like she knew it was it was a baby inside there. And when I was leading up to delivery, she was actually more attentive to me than she ever is. And then when we got home, I mean, she lays right in front of Alina's um, either crib or her bassinet or her swing. Whenever Alina's left alone, she's right there next to her. And when we had visitors, She'd watch the visitors very closely on um, where they were bringing her little baby to. So she is jumping into the role as a big sister very well. And, and Alina does have three older sisters that are human, um, and they love her as well. They are over the moon in love with her, and um, I'm very appreciative because they are great and super helpful. But um, her little first sister is also um, very attentive and protective of her. Final question, if, uh, if there are any constituents who are tuned in, who uh, may have a question or they want to reach out to, to, to uh, your office, how can they do that? Yeah, you know, obviously email is the quickest and, and most efficient way to get in touch with us. So my email is Allison, A-L-Y-S-O-N dot Sullivan at mahouse.gov. Um, I didn't have them change it because that would have been a really long email if I hyphenated my last name sure. with it. Um, but also, too, our office number is 617-722-2488. Feel free to give us a call. If no one's in the office, Catherine is typically there. But um, if you get our voicemail, just leave a voicemail, and we check that daily as well. Um, but feel free to get in touch with us. And then Catherine's email is Catherine with the K dot Mullen at mahouse.gov. So feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions or concerns. Representative, thank you so much for your time and, and for the update. We look forward to uh, chatting with you more and, and hearing more about Alina. Thank you, Kevin. And I... I Cannot wait till I'm finally back in studio with you because it's definitely uh, something I've missed. So I look forward to, to many more interviews. There she is, uh, State Representative Allison Sullivan Almeter, uh, our guest for the first opening segment of Monday Night Talk. We're going to step aside. When we come back, more Monday Night Talk, of course. Stay tuned. is Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi on 95.9 WATD. Fall is a great time to enjoy alfresco dining at the patio at McGuigan's. Start your open-air meal with a patio sampler platter piled high with chicken wings, cauliflower, potato skins, egg rolls, and chicken and biscuits. The patio's specialties include koji steak tips, braised short ribs, pan-seared salmon, and chicken marsala. Looking for something lighter? Sink your teeth into a patio burger, pulled pork sandwich, fish tacos, or margarita flatbread. Friday and Saturday nights feature live entertainment at the patio. 
patio at McGuigan's, sip on a specialty cocktail, and unwind from the week as the fall breeze cools down the evening. The patio at McGuigan's is at 552 Washington Street in Whitman Center. And check out McGuigan's Pub next door at 546 Washington Street, also in Whitman Center. What is AA? Alcoholics Anonymous is an international fellowship of people who have had a drinking problem. It is non-professional and self-supporting. AA is multiracial, apolitical, and available almost everywhere. There are no age or education requirements. Membership is open to anyone who wants to do something about their drinking problem. For more information, literature, and videos about Alcoholics Anonymous, and to find a meeting near you, visit aa.org. Alcoholics Anonymous has a solution. is Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi. All right, we are back. Great conversation with uh, Representative. A quick tip of the cap as we're kind of uh, transitioning from one guest to another. Uh, to say hi to uh, retired chief Tim Grano, who was a repeat offender here on this radio show. And I uh, love being here and talking about the fire service. And uh, every time I see uh, photos of him on Facebook, he's, uh, he's enjoying himself. Uh, Chief, thank you for tuning in. And thank you to all of you who tune in to Monday Night Talk. Uh, we now turn our attention, our focus, uh, to another great servant uh, here on the South Shore, in and around. Well, only Mary Waldron, who actually uh, just celebrated a birthday. We're not allowed to tell you how many candles. She is the executive director of the Old Colony Planning Council. Mary Waldron, welcome back. Good evening, and um, how are you doing, Kevin? Thank you for those wishes. We won't talk about how many candles nope. that were on the cake, right? No, no. <laughs> not, with a, not with a retired fire chief who's uh, listening. Which <laughs> might be breaking an ordinance with how many candles might have been on there. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yes. We'll, we'll <laughs> keep, we'll, we will keep the chief just sitting in his chair for right now, but uh, I certainly enjoyed, just because I was listening into Representative Sullivan, um, what a great public servant. We've had the opportunity to interact on several items and been up on the hill advocating for certain things that we do at Old Colony Planning Council. And um, Catherine Mullen is just outstanding. Mm-hmm. So this this South Shore really has a great, um, great legislative representation. Anything so, that we've needed, whether it's Matt Miatori or Kath, Catherine Lenatra, I mean, I could know, name them all because we do interact with them and it's been terrific. So it was great to hear Rep Sullivan. And I just want a quick note. I saw um, I saw your daughter Casey and her husband and, and other folks. Glad you were able to have spent some time with yeah. family. Oh, because oh, you are such a a busy person who's always uh, working on behalf of the communities you serve and beyond. I try. Right there is there is a couple of things that my mom and dad when I was growing up, I would have them take me along to their community service and. Um, I'm one of six, and I was the only one, like, please take me, take me. And then they said if I had a penny for every time or minute that I spent at a community service that I would be a very rich woman. Um, But I'm enriched in so many different ways, whether it's, you know, the Boys and Girls Club or the YMCA or the domestic violence. And I know um, Representative Sullivan was talking about breast cancer awareness. And as a breast cancer survivor of over 13 years, I am... uh, you know, advocacy until cancer is eradicated. Um, we're going to keep fighting and advocating for women and men to get um, their their mammograms and to go for checks. And you know, it's 
all important. So being part of the community, it's, um, it's something that my husband, John, did, and we as a family continue to do, and I'm certainly blessed to be part of, um, of my old Colony Planning Council family as well. So uh, let's let's start things off with some some highlights uh, as to what's going on with the Old Colony Planning Council. Uh, I believe that uh, the immediate uh, future as to what's going on. I believe we have some business that you'll be taking care of this week uh, in regards to finance and an audit meeting uh, tomorrow, as well as a full council meeting this coming Wednesday. What are some of the things on the docket? We, we do, Kevin, thank you for mentioning that. We meet, we, the Old Colony Planning Council, I should say the delegates, we have a representative and an alternate, a delegate and an alternate from each of our 17 communities, plus a delegate at large. And we meet on a monthly basis. We go over um, items and action items. So um, on the docket is we go over our financial report, um, where we are, um, it's, it's full review, not only on the finance committee, we review it one more time at the council meeting. These meetings are public. Um, all the information is posted on our website, um, oldcolonyplanningcouncil.org. Um, but there are things, you know, we do a reporting out of, of what the staff are working on. Um, we talk about, you know, we had some new hires, uh, Nick Giaquinto, um, who used to work for Mayor Carpenter, oh, yeah. is now working with us on economic development. And um, so, you know, we talk about the updates, but we also talk about bylaws and personnel bylaws. Um, and this council meeting, we also are going to be having some action items where each of the regional planning agencies has a representative um, to serve on their what is called MPO, the Metropolitan Planning Organization. And Old County Planning Council had been served um, by Dan Salvucci, a representative um, select board member from Whitman. Um, a little complicated, I won't get into it, but there's like two tiers. Communities that are a certain size um, gets one representative and communities of, a, of another set of size gets another representative. Um, uh, Lee Hartman is a representative of one set of those communities. He's a um, director of community and um, economic development in the town of Plymouth. So, um, so but we're going to be taking a, a vote of, um, of the person. Um, there have been some communities that have put names and nominations, so we'll be having a vote about that. There's an, an amendment to the TIP, the Transportation Improvement Program. Mm -hmm. um, the good news is, is that those are things having to do with um, the Brockton Area Transit and electrified buses that they receive, so we have to accept them and part of a part of our ongoing uh, review of transportation projects you know and then we have updates about you know different legislation um and just the overall operations of the of the organization so um we do have a um uh, we have a final audit that's coming um we'll be given an update on tuesday tomorrow our finance audit committee um and then we'll be having another um meeting later in um the month of November just to um, hear the uh, reporting out of the audit. Now, as for many of our communities or businesses, or um, the audit uh, is the most important element of our operation, knowing that we are checks and balances, um, that we are, you know, just checks and balances, right? They're the importance and being transparent about what we're spending on. And at the last meeting, both um, Becky Coletta, who's our president of the council, oh, yeah. and treasurer, yep, Becky Coletta is our, our president of the council, and Christine Joy is our treasurer. And both of them had made statements just about how important 
It is that we remain transparent. Um, any board member, um, we're public organization, so if anybody has a question about our operations, we open our doors and we sit down and we review. Um, and it's been that way for a long time, but it's we stress it even more just in terms of all the environment that's going on, right? And um, so it's an important meeting in October. Um, and then we have some things that are coming up in December. We have a, um, a yearly summit, and it's um, where we invite the public and our partners to come. And uh, we'll be talking maybe a little bit more um, about that event. I believe it's December 7th, and it's going to be held in East Bridgewater this year. So. It's it's worth noting a lot. You know, a lot of times we talk transportation. A lot of folks think that you know, Old County Planning Council. There, you know, the thing they hang their hat on is is transportation and, and taking a look at troublesome you know, corridors or intersections. But 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 the Old Colony Planning Council is so much more. Whether it comes to planning, I mean, it's right in your name, right? Old Colony Planning it, Council. That's correct. But also economic development. Let's can we kind of segue to talking about some things that are going on regarding economic development. I would love that. And you are so right. We've, you know, Charlie Kilmer, um, my deputy director, but also transportation program manager. Charlie's been with the organization for over 27 years. Incredible, resourceful man who we're so lucky to have um, on our team. And um, so that's where the reputation comes from, right? From from someone like Charlie and his, and his staff. But the economic development is really a growing element. And, um, we recently hired Don Sullivan, who used to work for SERPIT, a regional planning agency just to the south of us. <clears throat> and since bringing Don on, um, he has been actively seeking out projects. He is called the Economic Development Administration Whisperer. He is known across the state of Massachusetts and the region, I'm talking about New England region, mm -hmm. for his um, his intellect and his know-how about how to work um, getting funding. Um, so East Bridgewater, at their... Um, a week ago at their Board of Selectmen meeting, they announced um, they are the recipient of a $3 million Economic Development Administration Award. It's the largest, call it EDA in our, our acronyms, but Economic Development Administration Award within OCPC region in decades. I think the last time we received um, an EDA award <clears throat> of this size was when the Brockton Neighborhood Health Center was built, and that's 20-something years ago. Um, so that is incredible. So what that particular grant and, and award is for is to um, have an, increase the sewer capacity of, a, of an area that's um, tying into Brockton. Um, so truly, this is a regional, um, a regional effort. It, it could not have been done without Mayor Sullivan and the city council. Um, the, the town of East Bridgewater is going to be working with, and the jobs that they're going to be creating will both benefit not just East Bridgewater, but the city of Brockton. Again, regional planning on regional issues. Um, and I have talked about this previously um, at your show that we were in the midst. I think we were just awarded, but it still is the ongoing of the regional water issues, right? Yes. Um, we are lucky that this year has been a very rainy season, but we know that those are ebbs and flows. Um, Joanne Zygmunt from the office, along with Don Sullivan, had worked with all of our partners, whether it's South Shore Chamber, the um, Plymouth County Central, let me get this, Central 
um, water district. Under water, water district. Thank you. <clears throat> and they've provided funding as well as there was an earmark. We talked about this with under um, Senator Brady's leadership along with the other legislators. So they are now, they, they've been um, interviewing um, um, consulting firms. Um, and then the next is going to be making an award and then start the, the discussions working with our community. So, you know, Economic Development 101, there is also, it, um, it wasn't on my, my little sheet that I sent you, but we're also working on brownfields, turning dirty sites, contaminated sites, and turning them to be fruitful and put back on the tax roll. Um, so there is a regional application that was put in by Old Colony Planning Council on behalf of Abington, Whitman, and East Bridgewater, and the town of Easton, <clears throat> and that was awarded. That was the one that was for a half a million dollars. Um, a few months ago, but we're finally getting that on board um, again now with Nick Giaquinto taking the leadership role. So that was, that's just at the tip of the iceberg. We're working on, um, you know, this past uh, week, uh, Monday and Tuesday of this past week, I was in Plymouth for the um, Blue Economy, uh, the Blue... Um, All right, the conference. conference. Yeah. Yeah, conference. It was phenomenal. Um, Stephen Cole um, and the work of the foundation, exceptional work and bringing in light of, you know, Plymouth being a coastal community, you know, with Kingston and Duxbury nearby, that those are part of the regional OCPC's region, but really looking at a way of having the workforce be. So those are things that we are, we may not be a lead on it, but we certainly are in a supportive role and um, hats off to um, Stephen Cole for that work. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit. We got a couple of minutes left. And again, yes. if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Mary Waldron. She's the executive director of the Old Colony Planning Council. Um, let's dive right into uh, comprehensive planning. I know uh, that both Perfect. Plymouth and Plimpton have some uh, housing production plans in the works, and also Hanson and East Bridgewater have some ma master uh, plans that are in the works as well. This is great, and these are these are the great examples of how that we're just not working only with a selective number of our communities we're working with all of our communities so um under the comprehensive planning as was as you had um, had identified is that you know having a base of understanding a community and protecting your community of what you may want so halifax does not have a lot of businesses so they want to protect the fact that they have residential but in order to support themselves working in protecting the quality of life that each of our communities determine themselves and where they like to go um plimpton um in terms of a housing production plan as well as plymouth um allison who's been an intern um with us for about a year and a half and she's been working with Lori muncie um the director of the comprehensive planning on really creating these plans that, and again, working with the community members and holding meetings and, and being able to do a charrette, which gets input um, to then develop the plan accordingly to what they feel, as well as bringing in both of the, you know, particularly Lori is such an expert at this, is that she understands the laws, she understands what you can and cannot do, um, but obviously working with the community and the town councils for them. So the housing, housing protection plans are pretty critical for anybody that is looking to move in this area, um, housing, I don't care what kind of housing, um, um, you know, affordable or, or, or market rate housing, it is impossible to keep up with it. And now with rising interest rates, 
it's all going to be making, you know, the craziness of this world. So having a production, a housing production plan is critical for our community. So they'll know if you are a baby boomer like myself and you're having your, your, your young, your children who now are adults looking to buy houses, looking to have ways that they can stay within the communities that they were raised in. Um, and the same thing for the East, the same kind of concept for the um, Hanson and East Bridgewater master plans. If you don't want certain kind of business or any kind of of um, elements within a community, the master plan is going to be the what's going to direct people. So um, hats off to the team. That's Joanne Zygman. Um We have Rhiannon, who is new to our, our team, but Lori, joining Lori Muncy and Bill Napolitano um, and Allison, our intern. So that's the team for comprehensive planning. So we have like two minutes left, and I think it's just enough time for you to uh, to close it out talking a little transportation, uh, whether it's a Route 18 corridor st- study or even new studies in Stoughton and Kingston. Perfect. I'm going to sneak in, though, a little thing about our, it's the Area Agency on Aging. That is, um, um, we are unique to having an area, a- aging, uh, a- area agency on aging within our regional planning agency, but we work with Old Colony Elder Services. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because COVID is, um, becoming more prevalent in our in our facilities, and I just want to commend the Ombudsman staff who are in serving as resources for our um, 27 plus um, facilities. Well, on the transportation side, again, right, we're hearing East Bridgewater again. East Bridgewater's got their thing going on between their um, bicentennial, um, but it's also working with the Route 18 corridor study. So it covers between Bridgewater and East Bridgewater. And we were able to have a public meeting recently where members were listening to the data and the reporting out and shared that um, great input. Um, you know, but we don't rest our laurels on that. We um, have new quarter studies that are going to be happening in the town of Kingston and then also with the town of Stoughton. Um, again, the road safety audits and the, tr- and the traffic counts, all of these things factor in, and that's old Colony Planning Council staff doing that grunt work, that feed on the ground work, that that feeds in and working with our police and fire departments with each of these communities, and then with the state mass department of transportation. Um, we're lucky to have a number of folks, and um, you know, that's Sean Bailey and Ray Garino and Kyle Moat and Guo Chong Lee um, and Bill McNulty, and of course, Charlie Kilmer, and it's supported by our great GIS manager, that's... Um, Andrew Vidal, um, and again, um, that's where we are. There's continue. If I think if anybody wants to know what we're doing, either tune into our our um, our meetings, our public meetings, um, or go to our website. Um, it's oldcolonyplanningcouncil.org. We're on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, and we're going to keep growing that and try to be more communicative. And to you, Kevin. Um, for having me on so I can be proud of all the, the work of the staff. <laughs> I'm like a proud mama here. <laughs> well, we we got to wrap up the segment, but I want to thank you so much for your time, the information, and we'll have to have you back on in about a month just to kind of give an update. That sounds great. Thanks, Kevin. Have a good night. You got it. WATD FM Marshfield, WBMS Brockton. Find Monday Night Talk on Facebook and share your opinions. Go to 959WATD.com slash Monday Night Talk. We now return to Kevin Tachi and Monday Night Talk. Southern New England coming in from 
here on Monday Night Talk, heard on 95.9 WATD, second hour of the show. And uh, we kick it off with a, a local award-winning author, this gentleman, uh, originally from Weymouth, Massachusetts, uh, born in Boston. Uh, he is going to talk to us a little bit about uh, his new book, book is called Beach Town Stories, and he's written other books. We'll get right into that in a couple of moments, but uh, one of the books happened to uh, win an award uh, for his novel, The Heaven Stone. Uh, we are uh, privileged to be joined by David Daniel. Uh, David, how are you this evening? Kevin, I'm great. Good to be on there with you. Thank you. So, uh First thing I want to say to you is, is uh, you know, we, we've kind of teased uh, you being an author. We're going to talk about this new book, which I believe was released this spring. Um, tell folks a little bit about your background, because I think it's going to help them in regards to uh, your ability to tell stories and some of your life experiences. Sure. In fact, uh, you know, you mentioned of growing up on the South Shore. Uh, Weymouth was my home turf, you know, born in Boston. But when I was very young, my family moved down to the South Shore. And, um, I, you know, I, I think I began somewhere in there in the early years, like a lot of people, a kind of lifelong love affair with uh, reading, with literature. Um, loved Edgar Allan Poe when I was little. Remember, probably junior high school, writing stories that I thought were going to be Poe-like. And so it was an ongoing interest. And, you know, I did all the usual things. Of, I played sports, high school sports. I did um all the things that one would do, but I always had this kind of yen for uh, writing, and I loved listening to people's stories. But um, in those days, and this would have been back in the 60s, there was little real opportunity that I felt that one could be a writer. Writers were people that had their names on the spines of books at the local public library, but I'd never met any. Um, there weren't bookstores around where you could go and meet writers. You didn't see them on TV. You didn't interact with them. So it took some years of, of doing it, of trial and error, before one could actually believe it's something you can do. But um, I wrote in high school. I wrote in college. Um, I got drafted. I worked in the Army as a newspaper journalist. Um, so I, I, you know, I sort of learned my chops by doing it over time. But I've been practicing it diligently now for many decades. But but you you've also been a bit of a, a, a globetrotter, uh, twenty different countries, and uh, had a chance to um, have other uh, line you know lines of work as well, from a tennis instructor, a carpenter, to even uh, working in, in a lab for Harvard Medical School. Yeah, in, in fact, Hemingway famously said that the best training for a writer is an unhappy childhood, but I actually had a very happy childhood. Um, but over time I, I did, I did a lot of jobs, you know, swinging burgers at McDonald's, all the rest of the stuff you mentioned, Harvard Med gig, um, the travel. And those are just opportunities that came along. And uh, I think taking advantage of that when you're young is good because it gets more difficult as, as time goes on you, know, you get settled, you start to own a house, you have kids, etc., and then old age creeps up on you. So you don't get those opportunities. But I did have them, and I took advantage of them. And I think everything I've done, digging clams on the South Shore, um, all of it, 
has helped inform my storytelling. So, so let's talk about this. Uh, your your book again, uh, Beach Town Stories. Um, bit of an excerpt, an absolutely first rate political thriller. This is what they said about uh, the Tuesday Man is a witty, sophisticated, fast moving, chilling, and utterly credible. Uh, read it. This is the Boston Magazine. What is it like to 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 write something and then have individuals read it and and give their thoughts on it to their audience? It's it's always interesting and always fun. Um, you, you kind of write these things in the dark. You know, writing is one of the most solitary of the arts. Um, if you're in a band, you get together with your bandmates, you play, people hear it, you can play stuff for them. Um, most of the other art forms, you're making films, you're with people, but writing is essentially a solo act. And um, you're never quite sure, but you begin to, over time, at least get a sense that something feels good and you might lay it on a few friends um, and see what they think. But it's when it finally does break through and there's a long gestation period and there's a lot of rejection, but um, every time you break through and you hear from people that read something that you wrote, they liked it, they responded to it emotionally, what have you, um, it, it sort of makes it all worthwhile. Talk to us about the genesis of Beach Town Stories. Well, what, what is what is this book about? Is this a book about individual characters and their stories intertwine? Or if you will, give us the breakdown on this book. Well, I think you're right. The intertwining of stories. Um, it's a bunch of tales. I think there are twenty some stories. I'm not sure, and they're linked by certain common denominators. The big ones being place that little piece of real estate on the South Shore, just south of Quincy, um, just north of Hingham. My end of town was North Weymouth. Uh, and, and the common denominator of time, many of the stories are sort of throwbacks to, you know, my youth, my high school days, um, the follow-on of political assassinations, um, the Vietnam War, growing up, et cetera, et cetera. So, but they weren't written with the idea of it being a, a book. They were all written as individual stories over a span of right. oh, several decades. The earliest of these probably go back to some may even date from the 70s or 80s in terms of when they were written. And then more recently, a publisher had approached me about maybe culling some of them together to put together in a book form. And, and is it easier to for you to, to kind of write a series of of short stories or, or is it, you know, in your previous books, how does, how does this book in the series of stories compared to the five previous books that you've penned? Um, well, you know, I, I've done quite a few novels, um, probably about a dozen all in, but a novel, you know, it's an old cliche, but it is more akin to running a marathon where short stories are, can be anything from a 50 yard dash to a, you know, 10 K road race. They're much shorter in length. You do them in less time. Um, you're still going to kind of maintain some dramatic tension. You've got to make some characters who are interesting in living and breathing. Um, you've got to have things happen. But you can sit down and write a story in a matter of hours or a matter of days or a week. A novel is a long-term commitment. So for me, writing the stories 
would come periodically, maybe in the cracks between novels. Um, I just had a great story idea about a clam digger <clears throat> when I've been away this weekend, and I think that'll be a thing I'll sit down now and write. But um, So they come, and you grab them. But the themes, that, as you look back at them, you realize, hey, I'm writing about my youth. I'm writing about coming of age. I'm writing about letting go of illusions. I'm writing about what Bruce Springsteen might call the darkness at the edge of town. Um, and so a lot of that stuff works its way into the stories. But they're largely imagined, inspired sometimes by true events, but mostly imagined. If you are just uh, tuning in, uh, we're speaking with David Daniel, author of Beachtown Stories, as he's uh, giving us the details about this new book of his. And, and hopefully you will uh, seek out uh, one of these books for your own to, to kick back and enjoy the rest of the summer. Um, if you will, tease, tease our audience with some of the, the, the characters that you have in this, in this book and, and what the reader can look forward to from uh, just a few of these characters, if you will. Yeah, sure. Um, well, there's stories, as I mentioned, there's a kind of innocence in some of them. There's a story called Aristotelian Nights with a young guy who borrows a friend's uh, convertible, old convertible, because he doesn't have a car, and uh, puts in, you know, 30 cents worth of gas, because that's what you pay for a gallon, <laughs> and goes cruising down along the Antarctic Beach one night with a, with a girl that he's dating. And, you know, if he isn't much of a talker, uh, you know, much of a thinker, but he has looked up in the encyclopedia some interesting things about Aristotle and Plato so he can kind of BS and have something to say because he feels that you're on a date. You've got to impress the woman by talking. And uh, it's a kind of story of, of innocence and um, summer nights uh, at the beach. And beach kind of threads its way through a lot of the stories. There's another uh, story called Car Wash Dreams about a, an automatic car wash that comes to a small fictional version of Weymouth. And it's a tale about, you know, change in a town, clinging to the small town past, but eager for change. And yet a little bit fearful as high school graduation years, you're going to be facing a bigger world, a stranger world. And um, so it deals with some of those tensions, conflicts, there's another story, I'll just mention one other, let's say, uh, The Late Bus, about a young girl who moves to town kind of late and enters high school after the first year, and the other students are all well along, have formed friendships, and she's kind of the odd one out, and uh, she has to find her way, find a friend, deal with a resistance to other kids, and it, it, it sort of explores a kind of almost... I guess I would say uncanny, quasi-supernatural element in the town that has always been a legend that students have told in the town, and she comes right up against it. And, um, and it's a story. In fact, the main character is a guy that does something like what you do. He, he hosts a late-night radio station out on the West Coast, but he's originally from that town. And, um, so they're all dealing with people often, but not always young people, um, facing the realities of life. So I would ask you this, and, and this is a question that I, I often ask authors like yourself. 
when you're telling stories like this, you if you're coming up with character creations, how often are some of the ingredients people from your life, past or present, uh, are they a part of your book? And would anybody who reads your book, anybody who might be some of those ingredients, know that they are in fact a part of your inspiration for writing a book like this? That's a perceptive question. And I think um, I always say that everything I write is total fiction and yet everything I write is drawn from real life. And if, if your mind can grasp both of those seemingly opposites, um, then that's where we're at. Um, I make up things. I change names. I don't even call it Weymouth. I call it Waybridge. I refer to Hingham's Bingham. Quincy is Adams Point. I change all that around so I can own that landscape and people it with my stories. But um, <clears throat> I think people might find semblances of, of real people. But more than that, I think they're going to find semblances of real experiences rather than individuals. So I don't ever take anybody's life story and just wholesale hawk it. I, you know, borrow little bits and pieces. So the characters tend to be amalgams of, of people I've known, certainly. But all of us, you know, we live, all of us live lives. And I think by age 20, since 25, We've experienced virtually every conceivable kind of person we're ever going to know in terms of their traits. And uh, you can mix and match them. So it becomes um, an act of creation every time. What about as far as some of the, some of the uh, things that are in this book, whether it's, uh, it has to do with drive-ins or fast food, um, the shift whistle at a soap factory. I mean, are these things that are the things that you, you experienced and, and as you're writing it, you're, you're, you're kind of reliving those special times in your life. Or again, is this something that is totally, totally made up? No, you bet. They, they are definitely relived. Um, my end of town was North Weymouth and it's really the only part that has a saltwater beach. There are ponds in town, but you know, East Weymouth, South Weymouth, they're inland. But, when we were young, the beach was our gathering spot. And on summer days, it would be like a bunch of, you know, walruses had hauled themselves out and were just lying on our blankets, the girls in their nice little old-style swoopies bathing suits, the guys there, you know, trying to impress each other. we got our radios and suntan lotion. But, but the summer was beach, and so that was the beach town idea. And um, it was a case of... You know, the shipyard was there, the big deal. They built big Navy ships before, before our time in the war, but it continued as, you know, the Quincy Shipyard, Bethlehem Steel. A lot of the fathers in the town worked there. Um, it had its hazards. People would get asbestos, you know, poisoning, et cetera. There was a soap factory, a big Procter & Gamble factory there. Um, so all of those things, the clam digging that I did, as you mentioned, the fast food restaurants, the mini golf, the drive-in theaters, the Beach Boys soundtrack. It was, it was all part of that. And so when you're thinking back, those details come readily. And then you kind of work them into a set of characters and situations that the characters begin to feel. You know, the guy that he wants to go surfing all the time, but he can't. He's got to work several different shifts. And he envies this lifeguard who's, a really good surfer who got big surfing knots on his knees and a great tan, but 
the guy that's not making it, he's got the beautiful girlfriend that the other that big circle wants. And so you you know, you have these little conflicts that involve romance and love and disappointment and defeat and um, you kind of mix them all up and, and try to tell stories of them. Uh, I'm glad we... uh, one thing, Kevin, and that is that the book is divided into two sections. The first one is simply called Summer, and then the second part is called Other Seasons. So it focuses on the beach in the summer, but it really does encompass the seasons of, of people's lives. Yeah, and it's interesting hearing you talk about talk about like back you know it, back in the day when you're you're out on the beach with your friends. It, it's almost like it's something that is lost to our youth these days of being able to frolic, you know, under the sun, uh, under the sun, out at the beach, just being young, or going to you know. Well, these days we have such technology that you can watch something on a tablet, not necessarily yeah. pulling up to pulling up to a big hunk of of. Uh, asphalt as you put a speaker on your window to enjoy your favorite movie that, you know, it's going to be a double feature. I mean, these are things yeah. that, that are lost. So hearing you talk about it and reminisce, you know, about something that is in your book is amazing for someone who is, I think of a, of a certain demographic and also to the younger, the younger folks who may want to kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of something that once was. You're hitting on something that it, it, it indicates the change because I know you're a South Shore guy of a, of a younger generation, but um, the South Shore was our playground. Yes, we were from different towns, but once you reached a certain age and wheels were in the picture, you could go places, you had a license, your friends had cars. You know, you went for parties, dances, beaches, meeting kids from other towns, mm. dating people from other towns, and it became more than just your small world, but it was linked by many of those things. And... Uh, there was an element of fun to it that it, it, it hadn't gotten quite as, as I don't want to say dangerous, but risky maybe, or in some cases as um, confusing as I think it did. Once the 60s got fully underway and um, the complexion of things really began to change in good ways too, and I'm not knocking it, but it is a different world now. Every one of us has a little handheld computer and any information we know, I, I don't have to be a guy looking up things <laughs> in an encyclopedia to try to impress a girl. I can just look it up on my phone. Right. Yeah. Well, you don't so, have to. Yeah. You don't. You don't have to buy those fifty uh, encyclopedia books that are the letter <laughs> exactly. A to Z and, st and stick them all in your living room to collect dust. You don't have to do that I no know. more. That's right. Those days are gone. And if you're just tuning in, you are tuned in to 95.9 WATD, Monday Night Talk. My name is Kevin Tocci, and uh, we are continuing our conversation with David Daniel, author of Beach Town Stories. So, so was this a relatively easy book to write? I mean, how long did it take you to, to put this together, have a manuscript ready to send off to the publisher to take a look and say, how's this look? Is this good enough? Do I need to pare this down? Talk to us about that. It was during uh, much of the sort of isolation of, of COVID days. Uh -oh. It was not the kind of work that goes into writing a novel where you have to sit down pretty much every day and try to get words. Here I was going back to stories that had appeared in magazines and uh, various other places. A few were in some other book collections I'd done. And pulling together, sort of skimming the cream, trying to get ones that were representative. And uh, I've done enough 
for another another collection. Actually, if, if this one does reasonably well, I, I think I'll consider doing another one. I won't call it Beach Town Two or Son of Beach Town, but I'll do something with that. Um, but so it was more a fun uh, task of pulling them together, sequencing them the same way a, a band might eventually figure how are we going to sequence songs on this album. There's an old concept of albums. <laughs> and um, so that was fun. But it took about, I want to say I was all in. It was about a year's work uh, getting it getting it ready for publication. Can we talk about the, the, the cover art? Where did the, where is this cover art from? Great question. The, um, I was looking around. I talked to several friends of mine who are artists, kind of pitched them what I had in mind. Um, but nobody came forth with any fresh ideas. So um, the publisher happened to point me in the direction of a woman, Rachel Wilcox is her name. She's an artist up in, I think up in Ham, North, up Hampton Beach area. Um, and he said he owned a painting that she had painted. And it was a beautiful beach type painting. And so I went to her website and uh, again, Rachel Wilcox and looked at, she did a whole series of, of beautifully evocative, moody paintings in somewhat muted colors. Um, many of them set up on, on the north of Massachusetts shore or even Hampton Beach area, New Hampshire. And this one was called Vacancy. And it suggested to me a kind of loneliness, the way it depicts, you know, the taillights of a car going down a dark road that I, I suspect is probably at dawn if we're looking east out over the water. And it just had a quality of, of kind of nostalgia and maybe loneliness that I think fit the motifs of some of those stories. Yeah, so we, I selected, we got permission to use it and, you know, so we used it. I was going to say, I, I, I can feel the, I, you're right. I can, I can feel the loneliness looking at it. Not only that, that, that vehicle, but seeing the sunset, so to speak. And it's kind of like the empty boulevard, just that lone car uh, that is on the roadway. I mean, you have parked vehicles, but again, it's, it's kind of, it does, it does say lonely when I, when I look at it, but I love, I love the visual for, for your, your cover art. Talk to me about finally getting it, ready to send off and, and have it printed. What's that process like for anybody who has ever wanted to write a book and, and then finally getting, you know, the, you know, your first edition to get ready to distribute? Yeah. Well, I mean, we live in a world now where opportunities to do that are many more than they once were. When I first was breaking into publishing novels back in the early, I think the first one was like 1984. Um, there were a lot of big publishers, but there was no self-publishing per se. Um, there was no Amazon, obviously. There were no programs where you could format a book and get it out there. And so you had to go through all the gatekeepers, the editors, the agents, et cetera. So it, there was more work involved, I guess. Um, there was more money involved, too, because they paid advances. But um, nowadays, there's been sort of this great democratization of publishing. So that in effect, anybody really has opportunity to get things out there should they choose. Um, and obviously, you want to try to give it the best shot you can. But it is an exciting experience. I worked with Moon Press, which is up in Amesbury, Massachusetts. And they were terrific. You know, the editing was good. The uh, graphics people that helped design the cover, um, 
they did a lot. And I, and I did, you know, careful proofreading myself, but, you know, a few glitches still get through. Um, but then when you get the books, there's always an excitement. You know, it's like having a new friend or a new child or a new toy. And then uh, you got to try to do right by it. You got to try to get it out in the world. And so you do some promotion. Um, and may I mention, I'm going to be at Barnes & Noble in Hingham. Can I say something about that? You sure can, yep. Okay. On the 19th of this month, August 19th, from 2 to 4, over at the um, Barnes & Noble in Hingham, Derby Square, I think it's called. I'm going to be down there with the book. And uh, so, you know, people are out and around and want to come by and just chat. Don't even have to buy the book. Just come by and chat. That would be great. But anyway, to your point, uh, it's always exciting to get a new book out. And again, if you're just tuning in, we've just got a couple more moments left with uh, David Daniel. He is the author of Beach Town Stories. And as he just says, is later this week, he is going to be uh, local uh, here for you to be able to take a book and you either buy a book or maybe you purchase a book ahead of time or a couple of books and bring them down and have them sign. Maybe they make great gifts for uh, somebody who is a reader and keep one for yourself. If folks want to order books ahead of time, is there a way for them to do it? And if they want to follow you as an author, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they could certainly do it on Amazon. Um, I've got a Facebook page, and I don't actually know the, the handle on it right off the top of my head. But I have an author page on Amazon, and I also have an author's page on Macmillan Publishers, just under my name, David Daniel. Um, and the books are around at, at, at bookstores, some bookstores anyway. All right. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to, to have a conversation with me and share uh, your love of writing and one of your works of art uh, with some of the folks here on the South Shore coming from a, a South Shore guy yourself. Uh, we definitely wish you the best of luck. Anything you want to say as we wrap up this segment? Uh, no, just to thank you for uh, doing what you do, as I said at the, before we went on. Um, I really admire people that have stuck to something that I consider still an old-time art form, and that is uh, radio. And uh, so keep doing what you're doing, too, and I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Excellent. Well, again, thank you for joining us. And, and as you have uh, future works of art, again, you're already kind of teasing it that you're already working on a book in regards to a clam digger. Uh, I would be interested in having you back on, or even you said you, you have enough stories, but maybe you can do a, a second edition uh, that is uh, similar to Beachtown. Love to have you back on to promote that as well. That'd be great. Thanks so much. You got it. There he is. David Daniel, Beachtown Stories. We are going to step aside just for a moment. But when we come back, more Monday Night Talk right here on 95.9 WATD. Don't go anywhere. Follow Monday Night Talk on Twitter. Start at 959WATD.com slash Monday Night Talk. And don't forget to add hashtag Monday Night Talk to your tweets. We now return to Kevin Tachi and Monday Night Talk. We return for yet another segment of Monday Night Talk. Joining us is true crime author Maureen Boyle. And Maureen has written yet another book. She's here to talk with us about the ghost. Welcome to the program, Maureen. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. So good to see you. I 
just really enjoy being on your programs. I have to say, first and foremost, folks, just a little backstory so folks know. Uh, I was privileged back many years ago to be able to work with Maureen, who is an award-winning journalist, somebody who is, is teaching the craft to the next generation of journalists, but she's also one heck of a writer. And we're going to talk a little bit about this new book. Now, if you remember, it was a while ago. We actually talked to her about Shallow Grace. Remember, that was her first book. That was about the serial killings in New Bedford. This new one is called The Ghost, The Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer. I, if you will, kind of give us just a little bit of the story about who Greg Adams is. Yeah, Greg Adams uh, was a police chief in the small town of pa Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, Saxonburg, to give you an idea, is um, smaller than Rochester, Massachusetts, smaller than Kingston. Very, very tiny uh, community. It is uh, been described to me as uh, Mayberry. That's the type of town it is where everyone knows everyone. Uh, people walk through the downtown and saying hi to each other. Very, very friendly community. In 1980, Greg, uh, Greg Adams was the police chief in Saxonburg. The police department consisted of two full-time police officers. Um, in that part of the state, for many of the crimes, state police investigated them. A little bit different than what we have here. Uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas, in December of 1980, the chief pulled over a vehicle uh, about two blocks away from the police station. Uh, and it was, he pulled it over into a, a parking lot of of an Agway. And the next thing anyone knows is someone heard a sound that sounded like someone hitting something on a tree. And then they heard a, a young boy who was homesick from school heard a voice saying, help me, help me, help me. He and his mother went outside and found the chief bloody and dying. Uh, he later died at the police, uh, at, uh, at the local hospital, and the killer just seemed to have vanished. They saw, someone saw the vehicle leave. Uh, law enforcement throughout the area just circled the town. Remember, this is a rural town, so you have to know your way around to be able to get out of there. Remember back in 1980, we didn't have GPS, didn't have you know cell phones with everything on it. And the killer seemed to have disappeared. Um, and eventually they were able to obtain a name of a suspect. Uh, and that suspect was an individual by the name of Donald Webb, uh, who was living in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, that's how I learned about the case um, shortly after Shallow Graves was, uh, was published. Uh, and this was as the case was uh, the case of uh, the police chief's um, murder was finally resolved. Uh, and I got interested in the case because of just the, the idea of secrets. And it's something that really struck home to me from when I was working on uh, Shallow Graves. How could someone 
keep a secret of who the killer was, because I'm still convinced that someone knows who the killer is in the New Bedford Highway serial killings, and someone's holding very, very tight to that secret. And, and I thought back then, oh, no one could keep a secret that long. This is an abnormality. Uh, and then this case came along, and it again brought up the, the idea of secrets. How could this killer elude authorities for so long and in, in such a interesting uh, way? So that's how I, I first got involved with it. Um, I went down to Saxonburg uh, twice for about a week, week uh, at each time, uh, talking to people down there, uh, interviewed about 70 people for this, for this book. Um, and found it very, very riveting. It, it is a case of what happens when law enforcement ultimately all work together. Um, because this is a case that was ultimately uh, solved by the cooperation of state police in two states and FBI in, out of the Boston office. It was a uh, a case where there were no egos um, at the end. It, it really highlights the best in law enforcement, and I think perhaps the worst in human nature um, because the killer was allowed to be free for so many years. So that, that whole concept of secrets really just kept me going through, through the whole process of researching and writing this. How could someone keep secrets for so long. If you would do a compare and contrast of writing shallow graves and knowing that you had so much information that you yourself personally compiled and that you reported on to where you're coming into this, where you, your interest is piqued by the story. And it's almost like you're starting fresh and you're starting, you're talking about this is something that happened in 1980. So we're talking many, we're talking decades ago. What, what was the research like? It, it, uh, that's a really good question. And it, it was very different because not only was I going back in time, I was also going to a state that I wasn't all that familiar with. And with a, you know, a book like this, you have to get the streets right. You have to know the difference between townships and boroughs. And, you know, the whole system in Pennsylvania is very different than what might be up here. Um, you have to know uh what highway is going through what community and remember it um, and know the, the proper terms for the, the type of governments in, in that area. You know, here I could just rattle off uh, the information because it's just so ingrained. So it, it made me have to work a little bit harder in that way. Uh, and that was good. Uh, and because I didn't know anything really that much about the case uh, going into it, it was all very fresh. So I was able to ask, I think, even more questions because I couldn't make any assumptions because I was looking for answers. Did you feel that, that the, the individuals were welcoming to you? Here you are. You're, you're an outsider. You're from another state. And here you are asking these questions. Did you feel that people were forthcoming and willing to talk to you or did you meet any resistance along the way? 
You know, it, that, that's, that's an interesting question. And I was really blessed that the, those in uh, Saxonburg just uh, welcomed us with open arms. Uh, they were so cooperative, um, so helpful. I had spoken to uh, most of or a number of the subjects in the, the book at least twice before going down to Saxonburg and then had more extensive interviews uh, with them both times that we went down there. And people were just terrific, awesome. There's, it's just such a warm, warm and tight knit community. And they, there was no, oh, what do you wanna know? They're like, oh, thank you for remembering Greg Adams. Thank you for doing this. But it seems as though, and I was going, that was my next question was, is that if people were so welcoming, it sounds as though they want to resolve this, this crime and find answers for his murder. Yes. Yes. And also they don't want people to forget the uh, chief Adams. And every year they hold a memorial for him every single year. There's a street named after him. They have a memorial in front of their municipal building. Um, he's not forgotten there. It really is, you know, a scar in the heart of that community. Again, if you're just uh, tuning in, we are speaking with Maureen Boyle. And we're here talking about the ghost, the murder of police chief Greg Adams and the hunt for his killer. And the question asked is, how could such a dark secret have been kept for so many years, you might want to check this book out. How was how was your approach to writing this book any different? Did you keep the same approach to writing Shallow Graves as you did The Ghost? Or did you did you have to tweak or refine anything? Um, I kept some of the approach very similar. I have a tendency to write as I report, while, uh, especially some of the scenes while it's still fresh in my mind and then fine tune it as I go along. So part of that was very, uh, that process was very, very similar. So when you were, you were writing the book, so did, did you feel like the information was, was flowing or did you, did you have any times? It's, it's almost when you're writing, sometimes you have writer's block or sometimes you'll get so much information going, all right, something doesn't fit here. I'm missing another puzzle piece. Did you come across any types of challenges like that? Yes. Um, there were there was different spots where it's like, oh, this, is, this isn't working. And the reason why it wasn't working is that I had to get more information. I needed to talk to more people. I was trying to write around a hole. So and you can't do that. That's a signal that you have more work that's got to be done. Now, now are you the first are you the first person who's actually written a book? about Chief Adams or, or have there been others who've made an attempt to do this? Not successful, I, as, as it seems to be, you might've been. Um, as far as I know, uh, that there has not been any other book written about uh, Chief Adams and, his, and, and his, the killer's ties to Massachusetts. And the killer's ties uh, were very, very deep here in Massachusetts. Now, is it worth asking, did you find any any um, local scribe down there or maybe someone, a Maureen Boyle-esque person who might have been that, that maybe you could have connected with? Go, hey, what what's some of the things to help you in your research process? 
Um, actually not. I did, you know, I was in contact with the reporters, uh, a couple of the reporters down there. Uh, and I'll tell you, the community re uh, reporting down there is absolutely wonderful. It is alive and well. They have a very, very strong and vibrant uh, daily newspaper in the Saxonburg area called the Butler Eagle. It is community journalism where everything is covered. Um, and but, but they have a job to do and they're working, <laughs> churning out stories every day. But they're, they were very welcoming and very, very nice. But um, no, they, they were not helping with the research. I did uh, rely on some of the old uh, stories uh, of the, primarily that were in the Butler Eagle from scrapbooks that uh, some of the police officers had. And as well as the um, Saxonburg Museum. Now, again, we have you and I prior to uh, uh, sitting down and, and talking. One of the key things we want to make sure of is, is that we want to we want folks to sit down and to to read this book and find out um, what actually happened. But I think the one thing that I wanted to to probably ask is, did you find that that the police department, you know, there's a lot of technology that has has been introduced since 1980 in the ways of tracking down, whether it's DNA or there are different ways to be able to help move along a cold case. Did, did you find that, that any of that was introduced prior to your coming on board or, or maybe your introduction helped move that? Um, no, actually they knew early on who the killer was. It was a matter of finding, uh, finding him. Uh, this entire case was really solved uh, early on, but although they didn't have the killer in custody, uh, just through good old police work, cops hitting the street, knocking on doors, interviewing people, um, talking to each other, uh, cooperating. And what was interesting, I found out early, early on in this was, you know, there's always a story that local police and state police don't get along with the FBI. You know, that, oh, the feds, they, uh, they don't play well with others. Um, but through this case, right from the very start, the state police in Pennsylvania and the FBI resident uh, agents there worked very, very closely and they knew each other. You know, they were neighbors, they, they were friends. Uh, so they worked very tightly together. And the FBI agents in Pennsylvania also knew uh, uh, one of the agents that was up here, a man named George Bates, uh, because they worked together elsewhere. And he, George Bates was very close with the state police. They were very friendly at that time. So they all were working very closely together from the very start, the state police and the FBI. And at the conclusion of the case, it was solved again with uh, state police and the FBI, um, state police in two states. I would ask you this, and again, asking you to put your, your, your journalist hat on. I mean, you worked for many years as a reporter, and you've seen a lot of, you know, do, if you're looking at how you've had to deal with police departments, and as you talked about, you know, where there's a jurisdiction and it's like, Hey, this is my, you know, this is my jurisdiction, not yours. 
looking at, and, and again, this is not to say, Hey, in, you know, my home, my hometown or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But I, I, I want to hear that. I want to hear about that, knowing that you got to see how friendly and how much they respected each other. Do you feel that in your prior book, when you were um, writing shallow graves, that it was similar that you had police cooperation and that there were different agencies were working well uh, in concert with each other or not so much? Um, in, in the first uh, case with in shallow graves with the new Bedford highway serial killing, I really think that case could have uh, been expanded if the Plymouth County district attorney's office was allowed a more active role with uh, and combined forces with the Bristol County district attorney's office, because they really did need more manpower. Uh, so that's where that became a, you know, this is our case at versus, and it wasn't on the state police end. I'll make that clear, but it, it was, I mean, I remember uh, when there was, when the bodies was found in Marion, which is in Plymouth County in the, the highway killing case. And someone from the DA's office had said, this is our body. And it's like, hmm. you know, it, it just felt wrong. It's like, it's not your body. That's, you know, the victim, you know, and you should be working together. What is it like? And, and you know, for folks who've never been in the trenches or who've never had to write stories when, when some kind of tragedy happens, you know, as, as a veteran writer, you learn how to empathize with family members and be able to talk with them. What was it like the first time you met some of chief Adams family members and were talking to them and, and hearing and, and seeing their emotions as they were talking about that night and, and giving you some of the information to help write the book? Well, uh, for uh, Chief Adams's uh, family, uh, they're scattered all over, all over. So I, I interviewed them all by phone. Uh, and his widow, who has since remarried, it was very, very emotional uh, interviews. I interviewed her about about four times, and it was very, very emotional. As you could see, as she recounted what happened uh, when she found out about her husband's death. Uh, it was a very difficult time for her. And, you know, you could really hear the pain in her voice even decades later, because here she was a, a widow with two small children. Right. You had two sons, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, two, two sons. One was an infant and one was a toddler. So they were very, very young. What was, did, did you have a chance to talk with them? And what were you able to glean from talking to them about this book? The uh, the first uh, the youngest uh, son was you know too young to remember anything. Uh, the oldest uh, son uh, he described his father as was and he said this many times uh, that his father was almost like a, a phantom um, because he never really knew him. It was he remembers images and feelings and. Uh, his presence, but he was way too young um, and he missed out on knowing his father. So I had a chance to kind of take a look at some of the reviews on Amazon and you received some glowing reviews from some of your peers 
um, one individual who is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter uh, called your book. I believe your book was called Gripping. Okay. Actually, that was uh, a former host of Extra, actually called it Gripping. Jerry Pinnacoli. Yeah, yeah. Um, You've got Michelle McPhee, who has written some books. Um, Hank Philippi Ryan, who is, uh, I know some of you, you, mutual admiration. What's it like to have your peers um, not only pick up your book and read it, but also share their thoughts and give you kudos? What's that like? It's very, very humbling. Uh, it really is because, you know, these are people who I respect, who are just, you know, wonderful writers, wonderful reporters. You know, Hank Philippi Ryan is, is a, an amazing woman. Uh, she is one of the hardest working people in the business. Uh, and her books are just so much fun and just so intriguing. Um, I can't say enough about, about her work. And Michelle McPhee, when she gets into a story, she just doesn't let go, um, you know, as her two of her books on the on the Boston uh, Marathon bombings uh, highlight. And she's still pursuing that, um, you know, to, to use an old cliche, it's like a dog with a bone. She's not going to let go until she has the answers that she wants. Um, so she's uh, inspiring. But no, and knowing that, she, you know, she wrote for a local paper, a Boston paper. I mean, she's saying you're everything a, a true crime writer should be tenacious, unrelenting. How do you stay humble with all those great with all those great compliments? Oh, it's it's real easy in my household to stay humble. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's just very nice to to hear those wonderful things. And I really appreciate people saying saying that it's it's nice <laughs> so my understanding is is you finally got you've got copies you finally just cop got copies of your new book is it is it any different holding the new book the ghost than it was when you birthed your first baby uh shallow graves any different any different feeling or is you still got a glow about it i still get a glow i still think it's you know really really neat um now i never you know, when you're growing up, you think and you're a writer, oh, I'm going to write the great American. No- well, I never thought I'd write the great American novel. But, you know, someday you're going to write a book. You're going to write uh, short stories. I never thought I would write poetry because I'm a very bad poet. But um, it would be, you know, that was always a dream. But I always thought that would be completely unattainable. Um, you know, it's, you have to be in a certain class to be able to write books. You have to. You know, be going to Ivy League schools. You have to know someone to do this. And it was the, with the first book, it was, you know, the first book was a labor of love. It really was. Um, and I was just so glad that it was out and well received. Uh, and my hope with the first book was always, you know, maybe the killer will be found. Uh, and I think he still will be in, in the New Bedford Highway killing case. In this case, it was a little bit different. Um I just wanted people to know um, who Greg Adams was, 
who the killer was and all the work that went into this and says, you know, sort of look behind the curtain to see what really goes into these cases. Because very often, and you see it a lot with social media, we have the keyboard warriors always criticizing investigators. No, oh, they're not doing anything. You know, we don't hear anything about it. Well, you know, you don't hear anything about it because you're not supposed to hear anything about it. When things are under investigation, guess what? They're secret. Um, you know, they're looking at suspects. Uh, no, they don't release names. If they're, you know, searching in a different area or uh, trying to track someone down, they don't broadcast it out there. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work behind the scenes that goes out. And I hope this book allows people to see what goes on uh, behind the scenes uh, when they thought nothing was going on. I will say you did a fantastic job in promoting and getting around and doing the library tours um, for shallow graves, knowing that the, this, this, this gloom called COVID is lifting. Are you planning a similar promotion of the ghost and where can folks um, be able to follow you if they want to see if you're coming to a library near them, or if you're going to be doing book signings. Yeah. Um, I have a website, MaureenBoyleWriter.com. Uh, you can still also find information about uh, Shallow Graves on ShallowGravesABook.com. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, on uh, Instagram, and, and there is a Facebook uh, page for the book, which is the ghost uh, the murder of Greg Adams and the hunt for his killer. It may be a shortened version, whatever fits on there uh, for a Facebook page, but it's um, so they can find out, uh, especially on Facebook. Uh, there's a lot of information on there. And I also have an author's page on Facebook of Maureen Boyle. Maureen, anything as we wrap this, this conversation up, uh, I, I usually try to give my guests an opportunity because I can't ask every question and maybe I might overlook a particular question, but, but is there an essential question that I should have asked you or that, that, that you're asked that you feel is kind of important to folks who are interested in buying this book and reading this book? Um, well, first one question I didn't answer to you where they could buy the book. Um, uh, Barnes and Noble, I know in uh, Dartmouth and in Rhode Island, it's available. Um, it's probably available also in Hingham. Um, and also on Amazon and just inquire at your local bookstores uh, about it and they can uh, order it for you. We have been speaking with Maureen Boyle, award-winning journalist, but she's also a book author. You want to check her out. True crimes author Maureen. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so, so much. I always appreciate being on your show. And that's all the program that we have here, uh, folks. Uh, thank you again for tuning in until next week at 6.15 p.m. Have yourself a great night.